This podcast is offered by Jikoji Zen Center on the web at jikoji.org. Our programs are made possible by donations from people like you. So my talk is going to be on the Bodhisattva vow, the vows. And um, this past week I've been trying to immerse myself in, in what that is. Um, uh, I'm very much a, a baby priest. Um, this morning I realized as I put on my robes how it's kind of like the opposite of graduation. You have four years of college and then at the end of your time you're ready and you have this sort of robe. Um, the bodhisattva path is a little bit different. You take these vows and then you start off from ground zero. Um, I've been thinking a lot about what it means to take that vow, what, what it means in my life and, and what it's meant in my life, and um, realizing that I've been on this path for a really long time, even before the thought of ever coming to Chikoji for the first time, and um, maybe even before the thought of me actually being this thing that I consider myself as a person. Um, Last night I went and I saw this movie called um, A Hidden Life, and I recommend it highly to any of you that are interested in what the Bodhisattva vow is. It cracked me wide open. It's actually the story of a, a Catholic man in Austria during the time of Hitler. And um, he was married, he had two young kids, he had a a beautiful family and a home, and then the war came. And he couldn't find it within him to to take that uh, vow of honoring Hitler. It was just against everything that he believed in. And uh, his family had to struggle a lot because of that choice. It's a beautiful movie, and um, it's very much, to me, what the Bodhisattva vow is. Um, We say beings are numberless. I vow to save them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. The Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to become it. It's four really simple lines, but each line has a world within it. Um, This is also the time of Christmas and Hanukkah and Kwanzaa and the beginning of a new year, a new decade. Um, Let's just start with the first line of that. Beings are numberless, I vow to save them. When I think of numberless, not only do I think of unlimited, uncountable. I also think of the, uh, the Jewish people that were given a number on their, their arm. You know, numberless. To give somebody a number sort of depersonalizes them. It takes away their humanity. Um, in some ways, I think of the idea of being reduced to a number 
you know, we have our social security number. And, and many times if you hear somebody com complain about getting on a phone call or something like that, and they're treated like not a person. You know, I'm just a number to whatever. It feels, you can feel that. What is this bodhisattva way? You know, you open yourself up to the suffering that's just everywhere. How do we even take the next step? How do we move through our day knowing that there are people today that aren't going to be able to eat? They don't have a dry place to stay. They don't have family around them. find myself in a very vulnerable position because I have a dry place to sit, I have a wonderful community to share with, I have a lot of privilege in my life that many others don't, and how do I even start to share that? Thanks, Hogan. So I appreciate you listening while I go through this. So um, the Bodhisattva vows originated in China around the 6th century. And they were originally called the Great Vows for All. Any of us can um, choose to, to do some of these deeds and can choose to look at some of these things. And it's not easy when you really look at the amazingness of it all. How do we ever find our ways past our own needs, our own wants, our own delusions? You know, and to get into that, that bodhicitta, that place of, okay, it's not just about me anymore. It's about the wider sangha, the wider world, the wider purpose of our lives. According to Robert Aitken, um, the vows were originally redeemed the Sangha to stop debasing the three treasures, to perceive the Dharma clearly, and attain Buddhahood. When you open yourself up to that vulnerability of what it means to be a bodhisattva, even when you don't quite know what a bodhisattva is, you realize how important it is to take refuge in the three treasures, the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. And taking refuge is maybe taking a rest for a little while, instead of figuring out how you're going to fix everything and fix everyone. I, find my, I found myself doing a lot of research about grief this week as well, because um, the enormity of what the world is right now is very tremendous. In that movie that I told you about earlier, there's a portion of it where, you know, you've got this man who believes in something so strongly that he can't just give his allegiance to Hitler, that he can't just cave in on that little thing 
that would make his life so much better, that would make his family's life easier. Because he felt that if you're given this free will, how we choose to use that is so very important. The world is stronger than us. That's why we're lucky to have Sangha. We're lucky to have groups where we can come together and we can share these teachings and not be persecuted for these teachings. Gary Snyder said that Buddha's way is unsurpassed. I vow to embody it fully. Buddha's way is endless. I vow to follow through. I thought it was interesting that we, we talk a lot about gates. And uh, I found a really interesting thing about a gate. You know, you think about a gate, it can prevent you from going in, right? Keep you out, or it can open and you can choose to walk through. And these little things, these openings that happen, maybe it's grief, maybe it's a tremendous loss, maybe it's a, a situation you weren't expecting. Yeah, that's an opening. It's an opening to go into this stuff rather than just pretending that that's not there or closing the gate and turning around and going back to where you were before. Sentient beings without number we vow to enlighten. Vexations without number we vow to eradicate. One who is not willing to learn will remain eternally foolish. So you have to have the willingness to want to learn. We can decide to save somebody, but if they're not willing to open up and learn, is that right effort? And they say that all of this can only happen with wisdom. It's not just about having that soft heart. So there's this commitment to put others before oneself. There's a couple different ways we can put it. Generosity, discipline, patience, exertion, meditation is part of it. Transcendental knowledge. We can also think of it as giving, moral discipline, patience, effort concentration, wisdom. And hopefully wisdom is the, is the outcome as opposed to delusion or spinning our wheels. Chungyam Trumpa Rinpoche said to put, fir- to put others first, holding nothing back for themselves. By taking the bodhisattva vow, we are acknowledging that we're not going to be instigators of further chaos and misery in the world, but we're going to be liberators. Bodhisattvas inspired to work on ourselves as well as with other people. We're finally becoming useful to society. So it comes back to that. If we're being useful to society, you know, we look at the time of Hitler where, you know, people were helping in the, the resistance effort and they were also helping in the enabling effort, you know. 
I see, I see echoes of that today in um, the things that are going on in the political situations, not only in our country, but around the world. And it frightens me. It's very scary to me. Um, we have some very broken systems that are happening. And um, unless we figure out a way to change it, we may very well end up in the direction that we're headed. And that, that doesn't sit well with me. So this bodhisattva way is, we try to remain kind and willing to work with others. And it's a totally non-credit situation. We're not getting necessarily anything out of it. In that movie that I mentioned, there were many times in it where the, um, the central character was asked, well, what difference do you think that you're making? Nobody's going to even know about your life. What difference does this make? What are you doing to your family, putting the pressure on? And I think the Bodhisattva asked that question, what difference am I going to make? By taking this vow, it becomes really necessary for us to develop a sense of compassion First, obviously, we find compassion for ourselves and maybe somebody close to us, maybe all sentient beings. And this even means our enemies, the people that we don't agree with. Maybe it's Trump, maybe it's Hitler, maybe it's uh, the person that cut you off in traffic, right? So maybe the first that first step is to acknowledge the world around us, that it's workable, that what we can do can matter without grasping, without confusion, without aggression, because those things aren't really helpful in the long, bigger picture. So this week I also took a look at my precepts that I took at my ordination. No killing life, no stealing, no attachment to fulfillment, no illusory words, no selling the wine of delusion, no dwelling on past mistakes, no praise, no blame, no hoarding materials or teachings, no being angry, no harming the three treasures. And it's impossible. And yet, in the word, I impossible is impossible. And I find that that helps me a little bit. I want to read something that's not Zen related, but it's, I don't know, maybe it's a little bit of comfort on a day that's raining and uh, a little bit bleak. When I'm sad, I deserve more love, not less. When I'm angry, I deserve more love, not less. When I'm frustrated, 
I deserve more love, not less. Whenever I'm hurt, heartbroken, ashamed, or feeling guilty, I deserve more love, not less. Even when I'm embarrassed by my actions, I deserve more love, not less. Equally so, when I'm proud of myself, I deserve more love, not less. No matter how I feel, I deserve more love, not less. Despite what I think I deserve, more love, not less. No matter the past that I've survived, I deserve more love, not less. No matter what remains up ahead, I deserve more love, not less. On my worst day, I deserve more love, not less. Even when life seems cruel and confusing, I deserve more love, not less. When no one is here to give me what I need, I deserve more love, not less. In remembering the greatest way I can serve the world, I deserve more love, not less. No matter what I'm able to accept, whomever I cannot forgive, or whatever I'm unable to love, whatever reason, I deserve more love, not less. And that's by a, a young teacher named Matt Kahn, who I love, and um, I think it's very much in line with the Dharma. Have that compassion for yourself. You need to give that to yourself first before you can ever hope to give it to somebody else. You know, and that means nourishing yourself, finding how you can contribute what you can contribute in your special way. And feed yourself with that, you know. There's a Native American story about two wolves. You know, one wolf is sort of your bad qualities that you disavow and your good qualities. Just like when we bring our hands together in gosho, we bring those things together. Well, which one survives? It's the one that you feed, right? Feed the good in you. And when you do that, maybe it'll be a little bit easier to be able to feed the good in that person or understand that that person might be having a really rough day today or a really rough year. You know, so part of that bodhisattva vow is being able to step out of yourself and your momentum and maybe to, to look at that person's momentum with a little bit of softness and allowance. It's a lot easier said than done. And I see how I fail in that every day. Every day. It's hard to live with. And other people are hard to live with too. It's even harder to live with that inside and we all have that to some degree or another sometimes we crack it open and we look at it sometimes we crack it open and we sit with it I tend to be very quiet especially when there's a lot going on I get really I try to get in there and, and root it out Sometimes I'm more successful than others, and I'll have a, a period of time where I can handle just about anything that happens. And then again, there's that catch, you know, that little hook, the thorn in the rose that just kind of gets you. So I think that's kind of where the gentleness part comes in. We have to find that gentleness, that vulnerability, that is our strength. I really like Chungpa, Trungpa, I'm probably saying his name wrong, Rinpoche, um, who's 
one of Pema children's teachers, and um, you know, he talks about compassion, but he says it's also very important to avoid idiot compassion. You know, you don't want to handle fire the wrong way because it can burn your house down. He says we cannot be love and light bodhisattvas if we do not work intelligent, intelligently with sentient beings. Quite possibly our help will become addictive. Rather than beneficial, people will become addicted to our help, the same way they become addicted to sleeping pills. By trying to get more and more, they become weaker and weaker. So how do we find that line? Yeah, I want to help, but I have to also help me, right? What if the bodhisattva approach is to help others to help themselves? Give them the tools and, and let them work with it for a little while. Let them sit on their cushion for 40 minutes, half hour, couple days, go away for a retreat. See how they come back. They come back different. So I also want to get into this part called bodhicitta. Enlightenment mind. The mind that strives for awakening, empathy, and compassion for the benefit of sentient beings. And we can't force that on people. We can't say, hey, you know, to the guy that's getting really angry at the person at the, the checkout because she's not checking out fast enough. We can't necessarily say, hey, you're not doing the bodhisattva way. Right? That person's in their momentum. But maybe when you're up at the checker, you say, wow, hey, you handled that really well. You know? Good for you. Wow, I don't think I could have handled it that way. They say that that's a spontaneous realization or, or motivation, a bodhicitta. That's like the most, like that's the good stuff. You know, you, you're in the midst of a situation that maybe you thought you couldn't hand and, and that moment of, well, maybe there's a different way to do this happens. That would be nice. I can still remember the decision I made to, to take a week-long meditation retreat, even though I'd never done Zazen at, at Jokoji many years ago, thinking that a week of meditation was going to be fun. It was in some ways. But boy, when you really think about stuff, it gets really difficult sometimes. The many beings are numberless. I vow to save them. I can't even save myself. Greed, hatred, and ignorance arise endlessly. I vow to abandon them. How do you abandon something that's just naturally just there? And then you have all these other people bringing whatever they have in there too. It's like this big tangled ball of messy yarn, ego yarn.
So bodhicitta comes from the Sanskrit, two Sanskrit words, bodhi, which is awakening or enlightenment. It also means completely open. I think that's interesting. We have a cat named Bodhi that I absolutely love at Chikoji, running around, doing her little cat thing. Whatever she's doing in the moment, she is just, she's relaxing, she's relaxing. She's hunting, hunting, playing. She's just right there. She's such a great little teacher. And then the chitta part, that's what's conscious. And it also refers to the mind, heart, and it can also be attitude. So I think it's interesting that that word means both this and this. How do we combine those? Chitta can also be our ability to love. And earlier I mentioned the, the poem that's really talking about more love, not less. How do we bring that every day, every moment? Wayne Dyer used to say that, um, you know, what happens when you squeeze an orange? Right? Orange juice, right? Squeeze it. But what happens when you get squeezed? What comes out of you? Many times for me, it's irritation or annoyance. Or not right now. I'm not ready for this. Maybe later. Today, I put on my robes for the first time since my ordination a couple months ago and had this fabric on, thinking that I was going to be okay, and it just felt so weird. You know, the opposite of graduation. It's like, oh my gosh, what did I get myself into? Besides yards and yards of fabric, you know, I really enjoyed the process of sewing the robe, but now to actually have to be owning what that robe means. Wow. So another funny saying that I like that Trungpa Rinpoche said was, everybody loves something, even if it's only tortillas. Right. So maybe that way to connect with somebody is to find out what, what do they really love? And can you be open to encouraging that, helping them feed that wolf within them? But not feeding it so much where they're, you know, dependent on it, you know? Encourage it to maybe open up something else. I also found it interesting that he says that underneath all the tenderness is really that genuine sadness. And I I feel that. There's so much suffering. There's a lot of beauty in our world. You know, the beauty of the trees or the rain, you know, but there's still like a sadness there too. Like it's so temporary, so momentary. And then the next minute, there's going to be another emotion that will be just as real, maybe, or just as illusory. So we're, turning, we're training to be soft and open, but we're also training to be warriors. 
because it takes a lot of courage to go into the world with your open heart. And it takes a lot of courage to do something that you've never done before. And to fail. There's a lot of things that I don't know. And there are a lot of people willing to point it out. And they might not be as gentle with their approach as maybe I need in that moment. And I know that I am certainly not always gentle in my approach. Hatred never ceases by hatred, but by love alone is healed. This is an ancient and eternal law. And the Buddha knew that. Buddha said that. So seize the vulnerable moment. Love, gratitude, loneliness, embarrassment, inadequacy. Risk that. Awaken the bodhicitta. So I promised a little bit of something kind of crazy with our talk. Let's see if this works. Oh, we might not have the internet. Well, I found this uh, Bodhisattva Vow song by the Beastie Boys. Okay, in 1994, you know, the, the lead singer was a, a very well-known Buddhist. So I'm going to do my best to do my impression of the Beastie Boys. As I develop the awakening mind, I praise the Buddhas as they shine. I, bo I bow before you as I travel my path. To join your ranks, I make my full-time task. For the sake of all beings, I seek the enlightened mind that I know I'll reap. Respect the Shanti Deva and all the others who brought down the Dharma for sisters and brothers. I give thanks for this world as a place to learn and for this human body that I know I've earned. And my deepest thanks to all sentient beings, for without them, there would be no place to learn what I'm seeing. There's nothing here that's not been said before, but I put it down now so that I'll be sure to solidify my own views, and I'll be glad if it helps anyone else out too. If others disrespect me or give me flack, I'll stop and think before I react. Knowing that they're going through insecure stages, I'll take the opportunity to exercise patience. I'll see it as a chance to help the other person, nip it in the bud before it can worsen. A chance for me to be strong and sure as I think on the Buddhas who have come before. As I praise and respect the good they've done, knowing love can conquer hate in every situation. No need, we need other people to or, in order to create the circumstances for the learning that we're here to generate. Situations that bring up our deepest fears so we can work to release them until they're cleared. Therefore, it only makes sense to thank our enemies despite their intent. And uh, maybe up when we're in the community building before we have lunch, I will give you the real version of that. Because uh, it sounds like one thing when you first hear it. And then when you really realize what the words are saying, you realize, huh, when that person came at me that way, what were they really saying to me? 
right? The energy said one thing, but it was covering up that tenderness, that genuine sadness that was really underneath it all. So we have about 10 more minutes, and I would like to open it up to you guys for any, your experience with the Bodhisattva vow, what you're feeling, if you've seen that movie. So thank you, Jen. What a wonderful talk. And really cut to the heart of, of why we're here, why we're practicing this, doing this practice. Um, one of the things I really loved, I just came back from Tassajara, and and they have um, they have uh, what they call every practice period the Doan Rio, which is a group of people who are who are doing all the bells and the hans and the chants, and and so they had new kokyo, so people had the chants um, because uh, there was a very small practice period, so. Um, they had to put all, like a lot of new people into this into this group, and and um, everybody had their own way of chanting. And um, one of the ends of the chants is, "May we practice joyfully together in the the Buddha way." And so it's just like everyone had their own way of saying joyfully. <laughs> it was just like a lot of people got really into saying that one word. May we practice together. Joy, may we practice together joyfully in the Buddha way. <laughs> and, and it just became kind of a, a theme for the practice period, you know, practicing together joyfully. And, um, and yeah, the world, is, the world is a mess of suffering, but we have the choice to be joyful in, in our own being. And, um, and that, I, I just want to share that. As, uh, as something that, that really um, is living in my heart right now. So. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Jen. You know, you touched on something that is so deep, that perception of when you, when you have that crack opening of being able to perceive the suffering of the world, it's unbearable. And I was thinking, this last week that kind of an analogy of it is there's an emotional ozone layer that we need to have in order to survive. It's a buffer of some kind, but the things that happen to us in our life, perhaps through all these different experiences, they can thin it out. And in some cases, like we've seen on the planet Earth, there can be an absence of the ozone layer. If there's an absence of that emotional buffer for too long, it can destroy you. That's my feeling. And in the same way that the Earth is destroyed, and it can render me unskillful and unable to actually uh, do the exact thing that I want to do, which is to try to be compassionate in a skillful way. So, you know, the, the question is, and I'm asking you, um, 
how do we develop that emotional buffer that does not require us to be numb? Because that's one strategy too. Just basically go through life just to be numb, but yet not be so open that we are destroyed. Or is it just that we have to vacillate between these just, I call it an anchor that just pulls me under the sea. And I just wonder sometimes if I'm going to be able to come back up. I would say a sitting zazen. You, when you feel that, you sit down. You know, uh, I think Coben said that when you realize the enormity of what we're trying to do, you have to sit. You know, you have that thing that happens in your life that you just don't know how you're going to take the next breath. Sit down, let it, you know, do what it's going to do. And then you start from that still place rather than the momentum or the emotion or the heightened state of anxiety. That's why I think meditation is important for everyone. If it's a moving meditation or if it's a sitting meditation, give yourself that space. Understanding, I, I think uh, what keep come to my mind was what Angie said: is uh, it's a big job. And uh, what I have witnessed of you, especially cooking, you're a really great cook. It took a lot of work. Thank you. Thank you so much for that talk. That went very deeply into some of our challenges in our search for a dedicated practice. Um, I found it very helpful. I also wanted to say about the Bodhisattva way of life, um, your emphasis on the idea that beings are numberless and I vow to save them. And I thought you had a good insight into the way that other beings can save us too sometimes, that your discussion of how uh, the cat Bodhi can show us the purity of focused attention and being present. That rang very true for me. And um, a great challenge I've had recently is that a, a little dog that I was very attached to had to be put down because she was too sick. And um, one, one experience with that was that she knew she wasn't going to make it, I'm sure. And we sat just looking into each other's eyes for half an hour at least. And um, then she fell asleep with her head on my hand. And the degree of trust and open love that that conveyed to me was a great lesson. So I think that we save other beings, but they can save us as well. That rings very true to me. Um, it's almost a year since I had to um, put down my 19-year-old cat, Cosmo, and um, there's a lot of things like that that connect all of us. And we're lucky to have that, as brutal as it is, the lessons that they teach us up until that point, it's so worth it. I'll take that pain. Just a note on, on the word bodhicitta. 
you started to talk about the, this as a, as a vow, as vows, and um, a vow involves an actual deliberate choice. So as a kind of complement, not a counterpoint, but a complement to the sense of this open openness, this open heart um, uh, quality of the Bodhisattva way is the actual deliberateness of making a choice, of taking a vow. We say vow, but uh, um, bodhicitta is sometimes t termed as, uh, uh, your translation is right, but it also implies the sense of aspiration. So we aspire, we aspire to awaken for ourselves and others. And that aspiration involves a choice, a choice. So I think that's an important thing to consider that, to remember that we're actually doing something deliberately. You know, we're doing something intentionally, deliberately. Like when we go to sit, we're deliberately meeting ourselves at the crossroad of practice, you know, and we're deliberately and when we take the bodhisattva vows, we're deliberately making a choice, you know. So I think that's a, something to, that is involved with what a what bodhicitta is as well. Thank you. Thank you very much for the talk. Um, this is my first time um, in, in the center. Um, and my first introduction to this type of meditation. Um, I really am grateful for your talk because I've been struggling with a lot of relationship um, in my life right now and um, somehow it gave me an answer, maybe loving and accepting. Um, it's a way to liberate myself and other people in my life. Um, it's just that sense of softness that I get from the talk. It's very, very touching. And I really thank you for that. Well, thanks for your talk, Jen. Um, I, since I recently took the precepts, um, I had been thinking about since I was raised Christian, I started to think about precepts in terms of, of what I learned from Christianity. And one of the things that was interesting to me is, as I started to think about it, is basically Jesus spent his entire his entire teaching seemed to be about the right demonstrating the right attitude and action towards the precepts. You know, to how and and so and the, and then also like. Um, in Romans, Paul's letter to the Romans, it's like he's basically spending the whole thing talking about the right attitude about the precepts. You know, like it's not this, it's not this, and it comes. You know, and so it's it's. Um, and, and I don't really have anything to say. It's just when you when you see these two going at it like that, you realize that it's. That that the attitude and the actions it, it just takes a it's it's a lifelong process of sort of understanding you know not this not that but you have to keep engaging regardless so but 
yeah, it's not like one thing. So, anyway. I think, too, it's also the openness to realize that, that people can change. You know, we talk about, oh, that person's always going to be that way, and we, we, we shut that gate for them, you know, versus letting, letting them maybe choose a different way, you know, and maybe our softness around that helps that gate open. But that also means that we can't close that gate either, you know? Speaking of gates. Thank you, everybody. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by Jokoji Zen Center. Our Dharma talks are offered free of charge. And this is made possible by the donations we receive. Your support helps us to continue to offer the Dharma. For more information about Jikoji, please visit us on the web at jikoji.org.